Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey, hey, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati, in again for Scott Schaefer, who will be back from his foreign correspondence <laughs> next week. Hopefully with some good stories to file from his travels, or just tell us. Tonight, we're going to have South Bay Congressman Ro Khanna on. He's been working to straddle his roles as both the representative of Silicon Valley and co-chair of Bernie Sanders' progressive campaign. Yeah, and we talked to him about, you know, why these roles, in his mind, are not in conflict, uh, also about why he's so careful about keeping his kids off of social media. He knows too much. Yeah, Silicon Valley. It's a different world down there. But first, um, we are six months away from the Iowa caucuses. I just did the math. And it was a big week in 2020 election news. We saw uh, California's Governor Gavin Newsom sign a bill that um, aims to keep any candidate off of the primary ballot that won't release their tax returns. I'm sure that's not aimed Mm. at our president. And, um, of course, then after that, we had two nights of debates that went on forever. Yeah, I think I'm starting to realize why Joe Biden was speaking in error code by the end of the second night. This was a long, <laughs> long process. Yeah, I mean, you know, we'll leave uh, it to media critics to uh, bash CNN for their questions and format. But, um, you know, I, I do think that we're seeing this race start to heat up. I don't think that the needle moved very much this week. Do you do you disagree? Yeah, I mean, I think we both last week talked a little bit about what we were interested in seeing from California Senator Kamala Harris, especially on criminal justice. Lo and behold, uh, that came out. She was taking attacks largely from Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii on her uh, record on criminal justice. Someone got some oppo research there, huh? Yeah, although not sure or if, just a, if a she Google was reading search. directly from the oppo <laughs> research. Yeah, it was a little muddled, but... Yeah, you know, Harris, unlike the first debate, was on defense. It wasn't like mm-hmm. she was uh, had the same kind of opportunity to go after uh, Joe Biden without taking heat as well. I mean, Biden has some, had some oppo research ready for her. So it was definitely a different experience when you are the hunted, not the hunter. Yeah, and I think in a way that's probably a good sign for her campaign that she's seen as a threat by these other folks. And also, I mean, we've been hearing today, um, Guy, from our listeners who felt like we were too soft on her or didn't you know, go hard enough. And I think that this speaks to really the challenge Kamala Harris is going to have if she continues to move forward, which is there are a lot of people on the left in California 
California who do not like her and feel like she has not been a true progressive, especially around criminal justice. And then, of course, you know, she's a African-American woman Democrat uh, from California. I don't think the Republican Party is uh, going to pull any punches either. And so she is sort of trying to straddle this middle ground and I think be moderate but not too moderate and that's a, a tough place yeah but i'd say better to go through these bumps in july of 2019 right. i mean especially you know she was uh spent a lot of time on wednesday night defending her new health care plan almost felt like that was kind of a rip off the band-aid moment like she's gonna have to go through a debate where people are criticizing her for switching her position but better to go through it now well and i hope she gets better at it because i will say that's one major difference between the two nights so much more sort of fluency and depth when we talked about health care the first night with Senators Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. I felt like both Biden and Harris were a little confused about their own plans and how to debate them. Um, and, and then you saw, I would ar- also argue, with Biden and Tulsi Gabbard, uh, the Hawaii representative attack on Kamala, you know, they didn't, I don't think, always understand exactly what they were attacking her for. Um, I, it always makes me think, though, back to, I interviewed Dan Pfeiffer a year ago from Pod Save America, and he always was, you know, he said, we were so glad that the Reverend Wright attack came in the primary with Obama. Um, you can Google that if you don't remember that one. But I, I do think that there is an argument for sort of fleshing out some of this stuff ahead of time and getting those not-so-happy moments out there for these candidates so that once they get to the general, it's kind of old news for us in the media. Right, get it out of the way. So I, I before we move on, I yeah. do want to talk about this tax return bill that Governor okay. Newsom signed. Um, this has kind of been an idea brewing around in the legislature for a couple of years, basically ever since Trump was elected. How do we force him to release his tax returns? Well, let's make sure that no one can get on the primary ballot in California if they don't do that. I'm very interested to see how this plays out in the courts. I mean, mm-hmm. I think the uh, Constitution is pretty clear about qualifications for president, natural born citizen, 35 years old, 14 years in the country. Now, States add on things all the time. You have to pay a fee when you run for office. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm really interested to see how far this can go because I think, you know, the opponents of this have pointed to an example in the 60s when Louisiana tried to force candidates to uh, display their race on a ballot and struck that down. I think that might have been the kind of thing Jerry Brown was thinking of back in 2017 when he vetoed this idea, kind of the slippery slope thing. When you're if you're going to ask now for someone's tax returns, what are you going to ask? you know, two years, five years down the line. Yeah, what happens in states where there might be voter suppression efforts already underway based on race or other things. All right, we're going to leave it there for now. We'll take a short break, and when we get back, we'll be joined by Congressman Ro Khanna. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.com. 
org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Guy Marzarati, and our guest this week is South Bay Congressman Ro Khanna. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me on. Great show. Well, so I got to say, when we were reading up on you, I was like, wait, he's only been in office since 2016? Because <laughs> you're, you're that's, what my, such, that's what my wife said. She said <laughs> it's only a, been two and a half years. <laughs> well, because you ran quite a few times and you've been a pretty yes. ubiquitous figure in the Bay Area politically, I think, for what? The last, would you say, 15 years or so? Been I've, I've been active. I, I mean, and uh, yeah, I'm proud of my losses. I, I lost uh, twice. I lost when I was 27 running against the war in Iraq, uh, lost by 50-some points, 70-something uh, to 20 percent. Uh, but uh, now in Congress, I passed for the first time the War Powers Resolution stopping the war in Yemen, an amendment against Iran. So that that shaped me. And then I lost to Mike Honda, and it made me a better candidate. I remember uh, Mike Honda said, I know I had you beat uh, two days into the election. I said, how did you know that? He said, because you came out with this list of all these tech leaders who were endorsing you, and I came out with a list of all the PTA moms and uh, <laughs> teachers. There are a lot more of them in the district. So it, you, losing uh, makes you better. I agree. I think you, you learn more from your losses than your wins usually. <laughs> so we want to take it back all the way to your yeah, political uh, beginnings, even before you, to your, to your grandfather, uh, who was an independence fighter in India. Can you kind of talk about what inspired you from his career, both uh, in activism and actually in, in politics? Well, he's a hero of mine, uh, Amarnath Vidyalankar. He was born in uh, pre-partition India in Punjab. And uh, at a young age, he started working for Lala Lajpat Rai. He was one of the leaders in the Indian independence movement. His parents wanted him to go into business to own a clothing shop. And he said, no, I, I want to fight for uh, the country, India's independence and for human rights. So uh, one of the things that uh, I always knew about his life uh, was that he made a decision to pursue his ideals uh, over a traditional business career. And he was, even though he passed away when I was young, I was uh, probably nine years old, uh, I he was such a legend in our family that to this day when the family gathers together, they'll tell stories uh, about him. And he was in jail uh, between uh, 1941 and 1945, uh, along with Gandhi and other leaders uh, fighting for his beliefs. So uh, he had such a more difficult challenge than I uh, have had in life. He made so many more sacrifices, and it always is a reminder uh, of uh, what you can do to change the world through politics. Do you feel like that was something? This was your mother's father, right? My mother's father, yes. I mean, w did they? Did you grow up in a household where activism and government service was talked about a lot? I mean. Um, yeah, you know, your parents obviously moved here, and and you were yeah. Born was that here. disappointing to him? And I mean, given the fact yeah. that your grandfather had sacrificed so much to, yes. to found the, the country, <laughs> yeah. was that at all disappointing to see his his daughter leave? No, because they he had uh, been to uh, England and traveled around the world, and there was such a sense. I mean, he had such admiration for America, as did uh, many people uh, of his generation, and so I think they thought it was so exciting to see my uh, 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 parents come here. Uh, to get the education my my father had to start a life here uh, and I and if anything you know I wish uh, uh, my grandfather uh, were alive to have seen uh, his grandson elected to the United yeah. States Congress and and it would have uh, in some sense been a, a such a fulfillment of everything that he fought for that 
uh, two generations later, his grandson is representing arguably the most powerful economic district in in the world. I think that's like, we hear that from a lot of guests. It's like, we shouldn't take for granted how remarkable American stories still are when you look at family histories um, and those things. Well, you mentioned earlier, um, you know, your opposition to the Iraq war. And I know that I'm sure I'm sure that your grandfather's experience might have had something to do with your sort of anti-interventionalist yes. uh, philosophy. But also, I know that as a high school freshman, you were asked by a teacher to write an op-ed about the first uh, Gulf War, right. Iraq War. Can you talk about that? And it sounds like that kind of set you down a, a political path in a way that nothing had before that point. I'm still in touch with the teacher. And it's amazing to me how many people in politics still remember influential teachers who shaped them. And Mrs. Robb, Gretchen Robb, was my ninth grade English teacher. And she had an assignment for everyone in the class, which is you had to go get published. It didn't matter where, but go get something published. And so I wrote a piece about my concerns uh, uh, about the first Iraq war and what what I thought, you know, that we shouldn't just be uh, supporting a principle of defending monarchy, but that that we did need to take a stand for human rights. I mean, it was a piece that I that a ninth grader would write, and there was this very generous columnist at uh, the Bucks County Courier Times, Joe Halberstein, who uh, took an interest in the piece and titled it "Read This 14-Year-Old's Lips, George," about the first President uh, Bush. And I literally thought back then that, you know, maybe the president of the United States was going to read this uh, column in the Bucks County Courier Times. I now realize I could write an op-ed now in the New York Times and the president still won't read it. So not <laughs> well, much as— uh, that may not be the b- same. B- much <laughs> change. But it made me feel like here you could, at the age of 14, son of immigrants, have a voice on issues of extraordinary magnitude and uh, and that the papers would publish it. And it was an exhilarating feeling of— uh, of having an impact at a, at a very young age. And certainly, I don't think it made me think, okay, I'm going to go into politics, and I never could have imagined being in California. But it certainly made me say, I want to be an active citizen. Now, you went to University of Chicago uh, for college, and yes. you volunteered on the campaign of a law professor who was running for state senate. Should say that law professor was Barack Obama. Right. What drew you to his campaign? It was pure coincidence. I tell everyone it's so easy to go get a job for a presidential administration, just figure out when you're in college or in community college who the next president is going to be and knock on doors for them. Uh, but uh, And maybe in this state, maybe com- some people did it for Kamala, so who knows. Uh, but uh, the uh, I didn't know Barack Obama back then. I knew Will, uh, I knew a uh, person at Blue Gargoyle uh, who was, uh, I, where I was volunteering. And uh, Will Burns was his name. And he was the field director for uh, Barack Obama's state Senate campaign. And so he convinced me that uh, I should knock on some doors. And I wanted to make a good impression on him more than anything. And so I did it. It's only years later I realized that Barack Obama had that race already won. (laughs) And the field was just sort of a community outreach. But I remember back then people talking about him in very glowing terms. And they said, you know, one day he's going to be like Harold Washington and he's going to become Uh, mayor of Chicago. And I think that was his aspiration back then. But he was totally unknown to the point that in 1998, when we, a friend of mine did a international conference at University of Chicago, and we had invited all these different leaders, including at the time, Carol Mosley Braun, who was a senator from Illinois, and no one thought to even invite uh, Professor Obama at the time or State Senator Obama to be on any of the panels. Yeah. So you went on um, in your 20s to teach economics. Uh, you taught law 
Um, I did. And is that what brought you to California? No. I came out to California to practice law and technology. And uh, I had a professor, Larry Lessig. He said, the most interesting work is being done in Silicon Valley. Go out there. And I took a chance and came out here. So did you have any experience in tech or connection to that world before that? Just just classes. I mean, people like Larry Lessig, who had written a lot about uh, uh, cyber law, uh, and uh, I, I came out uh, being totally fascinated with uh, Silicon Valley, but I didn't have much uh, much experience. Of course, back then I was able to get a, for my first summer, I was able to get a room to rent uh, in, uh, in Palo Alto at a much, much more reasonable uh, amount than what the rents are today. I mean, I think it was less than a thousand bucks or something. Wow. Yeah. And now you can't even in my district uh, rent for that. Oh, yeah, totally. So then in 2004, you alluded to this before, you ran for Congress, uh, a very underdog campaign against Tom Lantos on a peninsula district. What was the reaction from the Bay Area political establishment, the Nancy Pelosi's of the world? Well, first it was. Uh, who is this person <laughs> and uh, who you know what what is he doing he has uh, uh, no real experience uh, but then i think there was a grudging respect when i was running against the war in iraq and against the patriot act which had really profiled folks into uh, congressman tom lantos's credit uh, after i lost uh, speaker pelosi actually called him up and and said uh, you know you should meet with him and tom lantos did and he uh, became in some sense a mentor, and he helped me get involved in uh, politics. And he said to me something that I always remember. He said, politics is an organic process. If you're a movie star like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you can just get up and run. But for most normal people, you have to get involved in your community, you have to get involved in the party, uh, and you just don't get up and uh, and run for office. And so it was 10 years later that I ever ran again. I spent 10 years really uh, getting involved in the community and in the party. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos alongside Guy Marzarati, and our guest this week is Congressman Ro Khanna. So you did go, I mean, you ended up working in the Obama administration as well during that time, but then you did um, take on Congressman Mike Honda when the, redistri- when the districts were redrawn. Right. Um, and I know you have a story about Speaker Pelosi, and you <laughs> asked her to stay neutral in that race. I did. What, how, tell us about that conversation. Well, I don't think she minds me telling this now uh, because I, I've told it uh, once before, but uh, she invited me to her house, and I was very excited. I said, okay, yeah. I'm going to go get to see the speaker. And the speaker had been a mentor now for, of mine to, for almost a decade. Uh, and uh, I said, uh, okay, I'm going to make my best case about why the speaker should endorse me and at the ver- very least say neutral. And uh, right away she says, are you kidding? Of course I'm going to support Mike Honda. And then I said, but you know, you're supporting uh, Howard Berman uh, over uh, Brad Sherman, uh, or you're staying neutral in that race. And she said, yeah, but they're both incumbents. I support my incumbents. And so I got very dejected. I said, uh, you know, here the speaker is obviously going to be supporting Mike Honda. And as I was about to leave, she said, "Uh, Ro, let me tell you something. Uh, If I had waited around, I would never have been Speaker of the House. Uh, Power is never given it's always taken. And that was her uh, tacit way of saying, you know, uh, she's going to be with Mike Honda and loyal to him, but you do what you need to do with, if uh, you feel like you're ready to run. Why do you think folks Sounds like, like Pelosi... Sounds like some mafia thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like I hear kind of the Godfather music the in the background. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Well, she's very effective. You know, people, have, people underestimate 
the sheer skill of Nancy Pelosi as a politician. Why do you think she was supportive, though? And Lantos, too. I mean, there's there's a, another scenario where they could have both totally viewed you as a threat, someone who's kind of lurking around the region waiting to pick off older members. Why do you think they took a different approach? Partly, they understood uh, the need for diverse communities to have representation. There was no uh, South Asian in Congress back then. The only South Asian politician was Bobby Jindal, who was very conservative. Uh, they understood that the party really needed to diversify. Uh, they also understood the importance of technology and innovation and having some of these younger voices. And so they uh, they took a, a, a chance on uh, uh, on having uh, uh, supporting my my aspirations. So, at what point during all of this did you meet your wife? So. My wife I met initially in 2007. We, there was a mutual friend of a friend who had a dream that she should introduce us, and she was in New, my wife was in New York. Like an so, actual dream? An actual dream. <laughs> and so I ended up going uh, on a blind date, uh, and uh, we were up till late, and I was, of course, uh, totally smitten, and then uh, my wife rejected me. Uh, and then a year and a half later, I pursued it again, and then we dated long distance for about a year, and then she broke up with me. And then four years uh, later, we got back together. So she had this great speech, actually, in my third campaign for Congress when I ran, and she said, you know, his first attempt in courting me ended up uh, in disaster. The second attempt was close but no cigar. The third attempt, he succeeded. So my prediction is his third run, he's going to succeed. For I sense the theme of persistence. Yeah. But I also heard that she said in that last run, this is it. This is kind of your last hurrah. If you, This is the last time I want you to run. Yeah, well, she's very pragmatic. She probably knew that if I lost three times, I mean, the fourth time eventually people may not, <laughs> may not keep giving me a try. Uh, but she's, you know, I I will say this. I, I mean, I'm supporting Bernie Sanders, but I'll say a nice thing about Vice President Biden. When we met, uh, it, when we won, uh, Vice President Biden it was having a Diwali party uh, in in uh, his residence, and uh, they invited uh, Ritu and me. And so they in- introduced us to the vice president. They say, Ro Khanna, one of the first Indian-American members of Congress. And the vice president says, congratulations. And then in a totally appropriate way, he looks at my wife and he says, but I want to thank you because you're, you get no recognition, but you make all the sacrifices. And I know what you're doing uh, in helping make this possible. So I, I think that the families of people who serve at any level uh, have to make so much sacrifice and they are asked uh, to do a lot. And so I think, uh, you know, she said, let's try it one more time. But if not, we've uh, got to get on with our lives. Yeah, fair play. I mean, it is not easy to run for office in any way. Um, so you you just mentioned Bernie Sanders. And I think that, you know, you are your co-chair of his campaign, right? Um, and you've been sort of supportive of him for a while. And I think that you know, there are people when you first ran who feel, you know, th- that you've moved to the left. Um, I think there's questions about where you sit. I think there's questions about where a lot of Democrats sit. Yeah. What is it that first drew you to Sanders specifically? His willingness to challenge the establishment on superdelegates, on getting big money out of politics, and on human rights. And what uh, really uh, drew me to him this time was our work together on stopping the war in Yemen. I mean, we passed for the first time together, 
the War Powers Resolution, never been done in American history to stop uh, our refueling of Saudi planes. And that, uh, I believe he has a commitment to get us out of bad wars and to uh, stand up for human rights. The second time around, it seemed like against Honda, you moved a little bit more to the left. And there were some people, I think, in that first race who viewed you as the Silicon Valley candidate. I'm wondering if, you know, now a few years later, if there's any people who approach you and say, maybe you're not, this is this isn't who I thought you would be in this seat. I'm sure there's certain people whenever you're in uh, Congress who disagree with some of my votes or some of my stances. But in part, I still have both threads uh, to me. So I've always been very uh, progressive on foreign policy and human rights. It's still one of the main reasons I'm endorsing uh, Senator Sanders. But I've always re- remained and I remain very optimistic about technology and believe that uh, t- technology is going to do more good for our nation and our world and that the challenge for politicians is to, A, understand that technology and then to be able to shape a narrative that is going to give more people confidence and access that they can participate in the jobs of the future and in the technology revolution. And I believe whoever in politics can shape that narrative uh, will be able to inspire a more optimistic message. So in some sense, I am a uh, trying to, to reconcile both a, uh, a pro-innovation, pro-entrepreneurship message from the Valley uh, with uh, Senator Sanders' uh, emphasis on uh, tackling massive inequality Uh, and having greater restraint in human rights. Is that possible to do with the current structure? Because one thing we are hearing in the 2020 campaign from Sanders and Warren and others is this, you know, question of whether some of these companies are too big, that they should be broken up. And I just wonder, you know, you could move jobs, say, to Appalachia, where I know you've spent a lot of time, but Mark Zuckerberg would still be among the richest men in the world. Like, like, do you like, is there an argument for actually tackling the underlying structure? um, Or do you think you can kind of have it both ways? Well, I disagree on the call to just reflexively break up tech companies. I think that there is a way that you can have stronger antitrust enforcement that uh, makes it uh, difficult for them to acquire competitors, that allows new competitors to emerge, that makes it difficult for them to favor their own products. Uh, But I I don't think just reflexively breaking them up and then having China's companies be the big companies, Alibaba, Baidu, Tencent, makes sense. I do think there are policies we can pursue that – bring more jobs to communities left behind short of breaking up companies. I mean, it's not going to help Iowa or West Virginia or Kentucky to have three Facebooks in my district as opposed to one. What's going to help them is figuring out how do we have tech institutes in those places? How do we incentivize more uh, venture capital going into those places? How do we incentivize uh, more tech hiring in those places? I mean, what about like Warren's proposals on, you know, taxing the ultra rich? And we should say your your wife comes from a very wealthy family. She does. Um, I know you still have some student loans. I think you've talked about. But, yes. Uh, but, you know, I think like are those uncomfortable conversations to be having with the executives whose, you know, district you represent? Like are, are there ever some sort of heated moments in there? There are there are differences. I mean, when I've called for stronger privacy protections, when I've called for stronger antitrust law, when I've called for taxing their profits overseas. And I support uh, increased uh, taxation on uh, the uh, very wealthy. But my interest is uh, not just uh, increasing taxes on the very wealthy. Right now, so much of our focus is post-distribution 
economics, which is to say uh, some people are creating the wealth and then how do we uh, redistribute it to uh, give people a decent shot? All right. To close, I have a question for you about privacy. Yes. I've noticed that you I didn't actually know you had kids. Um, You're very, you know, prolific on social media. You're on TV a lot. Um, You have kept your personal life pretty personal, which I respect. I do the same. I'm curious if that is something that comes out of your work in the tech industry, because we hear this sometimes that, you know, tech CEOs who won't let their kids have phones, things like that. You know too much. Yeah. (laughs) It comes out of a respect for my wife. (laughs) But, you know, they my kids are are young, very, very young, and they didn't sign up for a political life. And I feel like People are good about respecting that if you keep it separate. I mean, if you start bringing your kids to political events or putting them on political mail, then you're opening it up. But I, whether my kids want to go become uh, uh, artists or whether they want to go into to, 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 uh, math or whether they want to do whatever they want to do, I want them to have their lives and not feel that they their uh, experience is being shaped by uh, by my choices. And so that's really why I try to keep that uh, separate. But I do think more broadly, uh, having young kids, that it is a challenge to uh, navigate to technology. So we have to, in my view, uh, have uh, greater standards that make it easy to uh, keep kids safe online and greater ways of, uh, of, of making sure kids are still doing all the things that uh, a childhood entails, playing outdoors and uh, reading and, and, and having imagination and not just being addicted to uh, electronic devices. Well, I'm sure your kids will appreciate it someday. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Congressman Rokana, thank you so much Thanks for so your much. time. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. Really enjoyed it. And that'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Guy once again managed to produce and star on the show this week. Don't worry, Scott will be back next week. It has been a week. (laughs) Our engineers are Katie McMurrin and Steele Muller. Our leadership team at KQED includes Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Guy Marzarati. You can follow me on Twitter at Guy Marzarati. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. That's a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown from KQED. Thanks for listening. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.